We'll wait for the mass exodus to, to get out the doors. We're, we're spreading to a wing over here now. <laughs> well, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and thank you again for who you are. A God who spoke creation into existence. And who has a plan, a design that will be perfectly realized in the end. Father, that you're a God who is not surprised by anything. You're an unchanging God. You're a holy God. You're righteous. You're loving. You're gracious. Father, I thank you for allowing us to know you, allowing us to know your word, allowing us to love you and learn to love you more each day as we walk with you. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit then to quicken our hearts to hear your word tonight. And Father, it's my prayer that you'll speak through me or move me out of the way. Father, create the miracle in our hearing so that we hear exactly what you want us to hear. Father, I thank you for loving us and I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Amos. We're going to complete the second part of our two-part survey of Amos. And as you're turning there, we're going to do a little bit of a recap uh, from last week's study. Why are these 12 books in the Old Testament that we're, look, we're in the midst of looking at now, why are these referred to as minor prophets versus the major prophets? I'll call, on, I'll call names if I have to. <laughs> now everybody else leaves. No, I won't do that. Uh, Shelly, you, you did something with your hands. What? Yeah, they're just simply shorter books. They're not minor because they have less important things to say. They're just shorter books than the, than the major prophets that were obviously much longer. All right. When does the prophecy of Amos take place in the history of God's dealing with his people? You remember? 755 B.C. Yes, sir. You, you win the prize tonight. Who was the king of Judah at this time? The southern kingdom. Uzziah. Yep. Who is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel? Jeroboam. Jeroboam the second. There was actually two of them. Um... What were the two jobs that Amos had prior to God calling him to be a prophet? Yeah, he was, a, he was a dresser of sycamore figs. What else was he? A herdsman, yeah. What was the unique thing about the sycamore fig that the dresser of the fig had to do in order for the fruit to ripen properly? Yeah, he had, he had to poke a hole in the skin at a certain point 
as the fig was growing so that the larva from the egg that was laid inside the fig at the very beginning of the process could escape and only then would the fruit ripen to its full maturity and would be edible. So you had to get the larva out of there first. So the, the dresser of the sycamore figs had to do that for every fig on every tree or bush, whatever they had. It was a very meticulous job. Now, which kingdom of the two kingdoms was Amos called to prophesy to? The what? The northern kingdom, Israel. Yeah. Where was he from? He's from Judah. He was the southern kingdom. So he's, he's not only a prophet they don't want to hear from, he's an interloper. He comes from someplace else to speak to him. Uh, so he's not real popular. Now, there, were, there are eight judgments that we looked at last week. Who were the first seven judgments against? And I don't want specific names, but kind of, yeah, the country surrounding Israel, the number seven judgment was actually against Judah. And I think at some point during that time, Israel may have been really rooting the, the prophet on. Yeah, tell you know, get. That, that one too, that one too, that one too. Oh, even Judah? Yeah, they, they're bad news. And then the eighth judgment was against Israel. And their cheering must have stopped. What had happened in, in this time in Israel that God was warning them? What had they done? Say it again. They became at ease. Yeah, the, the picture that Ben drew on the whiteboard over there last week was a hot tub with people just chilling back in the hot tub. And that's kind of a picture of where they were. They were at ease with everything. They were at ease with basically whatever they wanted to do. They were cheating people. They were, you know, they, they, they were looking forward, and we'll see in, in the one of the verses tonight. They were looking forward to the next, the, you know, for the, for the next new moon so that they would have the next Sabbath so that they could then sell more. They, they, would, they would have a lesser weight and it would cost more. So they were cheating people. And they weren't hiding that at all. They forgot Yahweh. They forgot God. Because they were living in a time of prosperity for the country and a time of peace. There were no wars on their borders. And they were thumping their chest and saying, we did good. They forgot that God is the one that, that brought them to that place. What did God tell them that he hated of theirs? He hated their worship. He hated their feasts. He hated their singing. He despised their sacrifices. I mean, everything that they were doing, they were doing because he had called them to do that, but they were doing it with the wrong heart. And they were even doing things that they weren't supposed to do. And then the future judgment of Israel was what? What did Amos say was going to happen to them? 
Yeah, yeah, they're going to be conquered and they're going to be captured and they're going to be taken off into exile to another country. Now, so last week we focused on the first part of the book of Amos and we focused on those eight judgments and the three sermons. Okay? Tonight we're going to look into the last part of this book and focus on the two additional segments of this book, the five visions of judgment and then the five promises of God. So we're going to be looking in Amos 7 verse 1 through Amos 9 verse 10 in terms of the five visions of judgment. Now, just one more recap. In Amos' three sermons that we examined last week, those sermons looked at Israel's past, present, and future in terms, first of all, that they deserved this judgment. Because of their past deeds and their present deeds and where their future was, was going to be, they deserved the judgment. And then the judgments were described. Now these three sermons are now followed by five visions of coming judgment on Israel, the northern kingdom. The first two visions of judgment do not come to pass, and we're going to examine why that happened. So let's look in chapter 7 of Amos. We're going to look in verse 1 and then jump down to verse 4 to look at the first two visions. Amos 7 verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the, when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Now, why would, why would locusts be... A bad thing. When locusts swarm, what do they do? <laughs> they eat everything in sight. Yeah, there won't be anything left. Dropping down to verse 4, we see the second vision. This is the vision of fire. In Amos 7 verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. So this doesn't sound good either. You know, whatever is left after the locust is going to be burned up. Which there's you know, not anything except stems when the locust finished. It's going to burn even that up. Now I want to pause here and revisit something that Ben talked about in the past two Sundays. And that is that the church is a people. Okay? The church is not this building. The church is the people that gather here. The man of God will and does stand in the gap for those that he has appointed, that he's appointed over. Okay? Our elders here at Cross Point have a, a mandate by God that they're responsible for us, all of us that are members here. And, and those three men take that seriously. Paul stood in the gap in his prayer when he said he was willing to be separated from Christ in order that others could be in Christ. That's in Romans 9.3. I'll just read it quickly. For I will wish, for I could wish, this is Paul speaking, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So you see, Amos, in these first six verses, 
in the first two visions does the same thing. He stands in the gap for these people. These are the people that he was sent to prophesy to and against. And he asks God to relent from these judgments to not punish the people. Again in the first vision, going back to verse 1. God showed Amos that he was sending a great horde of locusts, and yet Amos prayed for them. Through that passage. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. And again in the second vision, God showed Amos that he was sending fire to devour the land. And here again, Amos intercedes for the people of Israel. In verse 4 of chapter 7, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Now this brings to mind a question. Did Amos get God to change his mind in his prayers? Did Amos' prayers change God's mind? I've been sitting there going, <laughs> no. It seems like he did. So God said, this is what I'm going to do. Amos prayed, and then God said, okay, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I relent. So why does it seem like God changed his mind, but yet we know that a sovereign God, an unchanging God, a perfect God, a holy God, when he says, I relent from this, why is he not changing his mind? For the same reasons that I just pointed out. He is a sovereign God. He's an all-knowing God. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. God's design was established before he ever spoke creation into existence. God already knew where the people that he would choose would end up. See, he already knew that Adam and Eve would sin when he put them in the garden and created them. He knew that the people of Israel would turn away from him time after time after time after time after time. He already knew whether they would repent when he sent Amos to speak to them. He already knew the outcome. He already knew that he would relent on the first two. So he already knew it. He didn't change his mind. Now we could, we, we could, we could flesh this out over a period of Hours and days and weeks, but we're not going to do that. Haven't <laughs> got time tonight to, to work through that. But just know this, that 
when, when God speaks of himself throughout Scripture, he uses an anthropomorphic approach. That's a fancy word for God says, I've got eyes, I've got ears, I've got a mouth, I've got hands. And in the same way, he talks about relenting in something. Okay. He does that simply so that we can wrap our feeble, finite brains around an aspect of God that we just can't comprehend. Because God is a spirit being. He doesn't have eyes or ears or hands or a mouth. Or... But he speaks to us in that way. He reveals himself that way so that we can grasp something of him. See, God is so far beyond our ability to comprehend. He has to give us just little bits and pieces. It's the same thing in this. When he says he relents, he doesn't relent at all because he is a sovereign God and he already knows. But he's also demonstrating his grace in these first two visions. In Ephesians 1.11, we see that as a sovereign creator, God knows all of his plans from eternity past to eternity future. He already knows. And it's reality for him. According to Ephesians 1.11, God's purpose is always carried out. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So God's an unchanging God. So when He says He relents, He's not changing His mind. It's exactly what He knew was going to happen and what He had ordained to happen to begin with. Because God is holy and perfect in all of His ways. There is no inconsistency in Him at all. He knew the outcome of these judgments, how the people of Israel would respond, so there's nothing changeable about God. And we have, we have to know that. Okay, so those are the first two visions. The third vision is the vision of the plumb line. In Amos 7, verses 7 through 9, it says, This is what he showed me. And again, that, that first phrase in each, of these, in each of these visions is very important. Amos th- just didn't think this up. Amos didn't just conjure this up. It's, it's literally God showed him. He was able to see it. So there was a vision of the plumb line. Looking in verse 7. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Now, God's intent is clear in this statement. His plumb line is perfect and it's great. Does everybody know what a plumb line is? Okay. To, to, to set something absolutely straight or centered in something 
you, you literally have a line, and at the bottom is what's called a plumb bob. Okay, it's, it's a little weighted, I don't know, what I think of is when I was a kid, we had tops that we'd spin, wrap string around it and throw it. Most of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's a little, it's a little round object weighted, and it's got a little point at the end. So when you hang it up, it hangs perfectly straight down. Okay, and it, it, it centers where you are. Surveyors use it. Um, they used to use it when they'd set the tripod up so the trop tripod was perfectly balanced and level, and they could mark the very center spot. So the plumb line is used to set walls straight, for example, for carpenters. Okay. So they would, they, would, they would string this up, and the string would, hold, would, would go perfectly straight up and down, and they could build a wall against it, and, the, and then the wall was perfectly straight. Okay. So that's what a plumb line is. Um, and they built the walls, these, these master craftsmen built the walls here in the northern kingdom and built them as perfectly as they could with their plumb line. And God appears to Amos said, I've got my plumb line and it's not against the walls, but it's against the people. Because another thing a plumb line is used for is if the walls start to bow out. Now, if they're supposed to be straight and they, they, they get a bow in them, sometimes from weather, sometimes the, 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 the wooden studs in the wall will warp or twist. And if you look at a wall and you see a little bulge, okay, use a plumb line to see if it's straight. God said, I'm not putting the plumb line against the walls. I'm putting the plumb line against the people because they've gotten bowed. They've gotten off center. They are so far away from true that I can't tolerate it anymore. And that's why he said, I will not pass by them again. And that literally saying, God's not going to let it slide anymore. You know, he had let some things slide. His, his wrath had grown due to their continued resistance to him and to his true word. And he said, I'll not pass by again. This is the end. I'm putting a stop to it. That's what he's talking about. And he said that everything, their castle, which is their high places that were supposedly secure from their enemies, and their temple, their sanctuaries, all of those would be knocked down. Next, we have the only narrative section in the book of Amos. And this is by, it begins from Amaziah, who is the priest of, priest of Bethel, where the northern kingdom's capital was, where, where, the, where the king's house was. And he wants Amos to go back home to Judah. In verse 10 of chapter 7, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. 
for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of, I against the house of Isaac. Therefore, says, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be, delivered up to, be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself will die, shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Now here, a false prophet, Amaziah, who is the tender of the golden calf in Bethel, because they had a golden calf set up there. And he was in charge of that. He was being challenged. His position was being challenged. If Amos' prophecies came true, Amaziah was out of a job. He wanted that to happen. He really liked what he did. And so he basically he, he told Amos, go away. Paul faced the same persecution in Ephesus from the priests there because he challenged all of the idols. And all of the idols had priests that took care of those idols and he was about to put them out of a job too. Here Amos is accused of treason and that's the prophecy of Jeroboam's death by sword. And he's basically in, in no uncertain terms told to leave. You need to go away. Amos replies, however, first of his credentials. He said, I was not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. And then he says, the Lord took me. See, again, Amos didn't make this up on his own. He's saying the Lord took me out of that and said, go and prophesy. And Amos basically said, yes, sir. That's exactly what he did. Because Amaziah would not hear the words of the Lord for the nation, the words of the Lord then came against him personally. And Amos said, because you will not hear, your wife will be a prostitute. And that's either by force, when the land falls to the conquerors, or by our own choice. And that's not known which way that happened. But we know that was going to happen. He would see the fall of Israel completely, and he would die in a foreign land as a captive. Once again, we see the sins of one impact the entire community. Now, it was the sins of the nation that, that brought the prophecy against them. But then Amaziah was refusing to hear and told the prophet to leave. And the, the, the prophecy then turned against him in a, as well as the nation. Okay, now back to the fourth and fifth vision of Amos. The fourth one is the vision of summer fruit. And this is in Amos 8, verses 1 through 14. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord God. 
So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain again? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of the Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and every one mourn who dwells in it, and all it rise, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at moon at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for, only, for an only son and the day of it like a bitter day. And the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. The meaning is quite clear in verse 2 of chapter 8. Where God says, The end has come upon my people Israel. The basket of summer fruit depicts that Israel is ripe for destruction. Not for anything good. It's not ripe fruit that you can eat and enjoy. They're ripe for destruction. And again, it is due to their sullen silence and refusal to repent from their evil ways. They are looking for the next harvest simply so that they can cheat people once again. The fifth vision is of the smitten capitals of the door. In Amos 9, verses 1 through 10. Here Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, strike the, ca- strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. Again, the capitals are the, thing, the doorposts that go across the top. Not the doorpost, but it's the part that goes across on the post. That's the capital. And shatter them on the heads of the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the, on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again, like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and finds his, and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out again on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declared the Lord? Did I, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kephtor? 
and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All of the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Now notice in this last vision, God moves. Where had God told the people that he would be? Where he said he would reside. Inside the Holy of Holies. Sitting where? On the mercy seat between the two cherubim. God said, this is where I will be. Where does he move to in this passage? Staying beside the altar. What happens at the altar? Sacrifice. When Amos said this, I, I, I can't imagine the people just being, yeah. See, that statement was, I don't even know the word for it, more than huge. More, <laughs> just, like I say, I can't describe what it must be like because they knew that God had said, I will be on the mercy seat. And now he's moving to the altar. And they're hearing these things come against them. And God is standing at the altar and a sacrifice is about to be made. It's not a lamb. It's not a dove. It's not a calf. It's not a bull. It's the people. They're the sacrifice. There's going to be blood spilled, but it's not anything that they have brought for redemption. The sacrifice are the people there's no place to turn. There's nowhere to hide. He sees all. He knows all. He commands all. And who does he say is going to die? Look in verse 10. All of the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Who say disaster is not going to overtake us or meet us. If we bring that to today's vernacular, it's like, yeah, me and God, we're good. Or Crocodile Dundee says, oh yeah, me and God, we be mates. But he, had, he has no use for God other than that. Okay. Those are the ones that will die by the sword. Those are the ones that there is no place to hide. The ones who have a flippant attitude toward the white-hot holy God that spoke creation into existence. That chose them as his people. Those are the ones who will die. Now that sets us up for the next section. In Amos 9, 11-15, we see the five promises of the restoration of Israel. Beginning in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. 
and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Who does this? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. The five promises that we see in this. First of all, the Lord will raise up the nation of Israel once again. Secondly, the Lord will vanquish the enemies of his people again. The third promise, the Lord will restore the fruitfulness of the land. The fourth promise, the Lord will cause his people to enjoy his blessings again. The fifth promise, the Lord provides a lasting inheritance. You see, the Lord provides once again the restoration of his called people. And he said in this destruction, he'll not destroy everyone. He's going to destroy the ones who had that flippant, nonchalant, comfortable, at ease relationship with God. Of just, yeah, everything's okay. And we did all of these things, but yeah, that's okay. They will be destroyed. But the remnant was raised up of those faithful to God. While there was a national curse, and 33 years after the prophecy was spoken, they were captured and carried off into captivity. And in that capturing and being carried off to captivity a large number of those people died. But God spared a remnant, those who were walking faithfully with him. Were they carried off into captivity also? Yes, they were. They suffered some of the consequences of that national curse. But individually, as they walked with God, God protected them, God loved them, and God restored them. Now, some of that took place in the lives of, of, of people at that time. Okay. Do you remember who carried them off to captivity? The Assyrians. Do you remember the things that the Assyrians... When I talked through Jonah about two years ago, um, I, I did a little bit of research on the Assyrians... They were nasty. I mean, when they conquered a people, they didn't take a lot of captives. They tortured them just in horrible ways. They would skin them alive. And when they were stripping strips of skin off, then they would nail them up on the wall in front of the person they just took them off of so they could see their own skin. They also had a, a, a bronze bull that they would tie them up and stick them inside this thing. And there was, it was called a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet like, you know, like Al Hurt played. Y'all probably don't know, know who Al Hurt was either. So anyway, I keep showing my age. 
This man knows who Alfred was. Bless you. <laughs> and those two over there do. They're younger than I am, but yeah, we go on. But this, it was just, it was a, it was a circular tube, and the, the, the bell of this trumpet was, was at the bull's mouth. It was hollow on the inside. And they would put the victim inside that bronze bull, and they would build a fire under it. And the person would basically just cook. And as they were screaming, the sound that came out of that coiled tube, that tr- called a trumpet, sounded like a bull roaring. And so they would say, our God is pleased with the sacrifice. I mean, they would do stuff like that. And the ones that they killed, they chopped their heads off and they made a pyramid in the center of the, like the town square. They'd make a, a pyramid out of, the, out of the severed heads. Those were the people that... Israel was captured by. Those are the kind of things that they suffered. But notice in each of the five promises, who accomplishes each of the five promises? It's the Lord. The Lord will raise up the nation of Israel once again. The Lord will vanquish the enemies of his people again. The Lord will restore the fruitfulness of the land. The Lord will cause his people to enjoy his blessings again. And the Lord provides a lasting inheritance. Part of that restoration was when the people came back into Israel. But the largest part of those promises are our future. When God takes us home. When God comes back and he separates the, the, the goats from the sheep. I mean, that, that's what happened here. God said, those that are sinners, those are the goats. My sheep are the remnant that I want to bring back. But this is a shadowy picture of what God has planned for those who are faithful to him on judgment day. On judgment day, he'll separate the goats from the sheep. The goats will be separated from God forever and cast into the lake of fire. And the sheep will be restored. They'll be raised up. The enemies will be vanquished. God will restore the fruitfulness of the land. He will cause his people to enjoy his blessings perfectly in a new heaven and a new earth. And that lasting inheritance goes for all eternity. So this is a picture of what awaits us. That's the good news of Amos. This is not just a, a little bitty book in the Old Testament that's stuck between you know, Psalms and the beginning of, of the New Testament. There's an absolutely phenomenal, sweet message in Amos that God will restore his remnant. And those are those today who are called by his name. Keep in mind, with those five promises, God is absolutely the active agent involved in all of that. And we get to enjoy that. All right. Any thoughts or questions or comments about Amos? I went 10 minutes over last week. I'm going to actually end a few minutes early tonight, try to balance that out a little bit. So y'all can be waiting for your children. All right. If, if there's nothing else, let's close with prayer. Father, again, we love you and we thank you for the truth of your word. 
We thank you for being able to see in a book that we call a minor prophet of Amos that we get to see a picture of what awaits us sometime in the future and for all eternity in the future. A completely restored relationship with you. A perfect experience, a perfect fruitfulness of that new heaven and that new earth, a perfect relationship with you, and a perfect, lasting, eternal inheritance. Father, you show us once again that your love trumps evil. And that your love is such that it demands our obedience. We can't simply slide through a comfortable life thinking that everything's okay. Because you call us to walk with you. And we cannot have any other gods before you. We cannot have any idols. And Father, lots of things of the world can become idols for us. You're a jealous God who will not tolerate that. Father, help us be a faithful people. And Father, when we're not faithful, I ask that you would forgive us and that you would draw us back to yourself. Father, I thank you for those who are here tonight. I pray your blessings upon each family represented. Father, I pray that you will go with us from this place, continue to quicken our hearts to walk with you rightly to love you and to get to know you and to love you even more as we know you more. Father, I thank you for the weather that you've created, the change of the weather. and the, We go from the cold to the hot and from the hot to the cold. We go from the dry to the wet. All of that, Father, is you taking care and nurturing your creation. And we can be encouraged in that. But if you take care of that aspect of your creation, we know for sure that you take care of us as well. Father, I do thank you for loving us, and I thank you for the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth of your word. And I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name I pray these things. Amen.